If I turn the back short, it'll be good. Friends, um, come and uh, find your seats. I, I can make this look good. It just takes lots of hair gel. Um, you'll find um, when you came through the door as well a couple of little um, handouts for you, and so uh, it would be really great to read that little booklet one this week. Um, just really help to think about how should we be reading Revelation. Some helpful um, pointers in there, and uh, and you'll see that on the other ones as well as um, a map, and then a bit of a, a structure, and then on the other bit of paper, um, more specifically that Revelation 1 that we're looking at tonight, the different visions of Jesus. Um, so, uh, those aside for a little bit, um, let me pray. Our Father, as we come to this wonderful letter of yours, we ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the greatness of the revelation of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you were to survey Christians about the book of Revelation, you'd find most fall into two camps. Uh, there are those who love it, who can't get enough of it, who are just engrossed in it, um, even obsessed with it. And the other group, like Matt, <laughs> those kind of fear it, those who get lost in the imagery, um, you don't really understand it, and so you never really dip your toes into it because what the heck is it even about? Um, I remember a month or so ago, I was reading Revelation and I was about to meet up with Matt, and he asked, what are you doing today? I said, oh, I'm just reading Revelation. He goes, what do you even do with that? <laughs> <laughs> um, if you've ever waded into the waters of Revelation, you'd, you'd, you'd have found stories of, of battles and dragons and beasts Imagery, symbols, numbers and visions, but what do they all mean? You might have heard or met people who say that every war on earth can be predicted by revelation, um, or people who predict the return of Jesus with their calculations that they get out of revelation, um, but they kind of keep having to alter those because the, that hour, that day goes by and nothing really happens. Um, but we know that they're wrong because Jesus himself tells us that you can't predict the day or the hour that he'll return. Um, some people believe that credit cards um, in the past were from the devil because the main credit card years ago was called a bank card. And on the bank card it had three little B logos, one inside the other. Um, and so they thought it was the number 666, the mark of the beast in chapter 13. Others have said that this mark of the beast, the 666, is former US President Ronald Wilson Reagan because... 666 are the number of letters in his name. Um, I'm in trouble too then, Stephen Wesley Lister. 666, <laughs> maybe I'm the beast. Uh, but it's actually not that hard to find out what this book of Revelation is all about. You just look at the first verse on that. Have a look there. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now here is what the entire book is about. The revelation of Jesus. It reveals to us who Jesus is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do. Our society pictures Jesus in various ways. Uh, sweet, cute, meek and mild baby Jesus in a manger. Talladega Night Styles, if you've seen that movie. Um, well, they see him as, as a man of impeccable morals. Maybe as a, some kind of a spiritual guru. 
To some, he's a faraway figure of first-century fantasy. But society has never read Revelation, if that's the case. And indeed, some Christians have never read Revelation. Those who think that Jesus is all about love and warm, fuzzy cuddles, whose chief aim in life is just to make us feel happy inside. In Revelation, the picture we get of Jesus is a lamb that's come back to life after being slaughtered, like a zombie lamb. The picture we get of Jesus is a ferocious lion or a man with a, with a tattoo on his leg riding a horse and the horse kind of belly deep in the blood of people that is just slaughtered with the, with the sword that's coming out of his mouth. Far from snuggling up to Jesus, Revelation calls us to fall at his feet as though we're dead. But before we get into chapter 1, we need to understand how to read Revelation because it's a picture book. And it's quite different to other books of the Bible. Now, I know you guys think it's kind of quaint and amusing that people used to read these things called newspapers. <laughs> and you even have to pay for them. Um, but as you flip through the pages of a, of a newspaper, you are well aware of the different types of writing in it, the different genres. There are news items that contain the facts and the details of things as they happen. There are opinion pieces that, that people write about an issue from their point of view. There are cartoons and advertisements and sports pages and horoscopes and racing odds and obituaries. And you know as you're reading it that you don't read the horoscopes like news. Now it's reporting facts. And you don't read the opinion pieces like the sports lift out or, or obituaries as cartoons. <laughs> That'd be a bit awkward. <laughs> You knew that there were different genres as you read a newspaper. And so you read them accordingly. And, and it's the same with the Bible. In the Bible there are different genres. There's, there's history. There's law. There's poetry. There's narrative. There's wisdom. There's prophecy. There's apocalyptic. And we read each of these genres differently. We shouldn't mix them up. And the genre of Revelation is, is a mixture of three genres. It's mostly apocalyptic. But it's also a letter. And it's also prophecy. Uh, but what is apocalyptic genre? Well, to modern readers, we just think, you know, when we hear the word apocalyptic, we think the zombies, don't we? We think cataclysmic destruction, the end of the world. But apocalyptic simply means revealing. It's where the name revelation comes from. The Greek word is apocalypsis, a revelation. And please note that it is one revelation, one apocalypse. It's not revelations, it's one revelation about Jesus. Now the idea of, of this apocalypse, this revealing, it's you know, as if you're parting the curtains on a piece of artwork to reveal art. Or you're opening the curtains of, of the theatre to reveal a play. It reveals something that was hidden. And it was a popular style of Jewish writing that was popular for about 400 years. Uh, 400 years span from 200 years before Jesus was born to about 200 years after his death. And this type of writing, it, it included a cosmic imagery, you know, stuff of, of, of the universe. There are vivid divides between good and evil. Uh, there's numbers and symbols and colours and strange pictures. And the chief purpose of this style of writing... Uh, by the Jews was 
was to reveal God's purposes in history. And that is of bringing judgment on the wicked and bringing his kingdom for the righteous. That's what Jewish apocalyptic writing was about. God's judgment and God's kingdom. And so as you look to crack the code in order to read this letter, remember it's all about Jesus. About Jesus who died and rose to life and who now rules over all and is coming back. So if someone tries to tell you, oh, this is what Revelation means or this is what this passage means and Jesus isn't mentioned, well, you can politely ignore them. Revelation centres on the gospel of Jesus. Uh, in one of the handouts I gave you, you can read for yourself some more keys to reading Revelation through the week. Um, but as you read this, this letter, don't get consumed by the details. Just kind of step back and get the big picture. If you need to know what the different things represent, well, the passage will tell you that. But be engrossed by the overall story of them. Don't get caught up on the details. Uh, as, you're, as you're reading, you know, praise the Lord, cheer for the saints, detest the beast, and long for final victory. Uh, so let's get into it, shall we? Let's see how God reveals Jesus to us. As we read chapter 1, we should be in awe. It's all about Jesus, a vision of him in all his splendor. So verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his slaves what must quickly take place. He that is God sent it and signified it through his angel to his slave John, who testified to God's word and to the testimony about Jesus Christ in all that he saw. The one who reads this is blessed. And those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it are blessed because the time is near. Notice here the chain of revelation. That God gave this revelation to Jesus, who gave it to an angel, who gave it to John, who passed it on to the slaves or the servants. This is God's revelation about Jesus to his people. And before we dismiss this letter as too hard or strange or we think that Paul must have been, uh, sorry, that um, John must have been smoking something the night before he wrote it. These are God's words. And these are God's words to his church, to his servants. Now, I'm a servant of God, so it's for me. And if you're a servant of God, well, then it's for you as well. And you'll be blessed as you read, as you hear, as you keep what is written. We all want to be blessed, don't we? Ignore these words. And you'll miss out on blessing. So take them to heart. They are God's words to you. The prophecy is speaking about what Jesus will soon do. Uh, it will happen any moment, it says there. Uh, we are in the last days right now. The last days is the time between Jesus' resurrection and the day when he is coming back. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says, In these last days, God has spoken to us through Jesus. We're living in the last days now. Jesus is going to come back any moment. And blessing will come in the present to those who listen to and obey Jesus. Now as we come to verses 4 to 9, we see the hallmarks of the letter. We see it's from John to the seven churches in Asia. Uh, you can see where they are on the map uh, in your handout there. It's all kind of in modern day Turkey area. Um, now, it's most likely that the author is John the Apostle who wrote other parts of the New Testament. And you can see in verse 9, he's on an island called Patmos, one of the Greek isles. 
but he's not sitting under a palm tree on a banana lounge, or sucking down a margarita and penning a holiday letter or postcard. Patmos is actually a prison island. And John was there serving time for being a Christian. Um, have a look in verse 9. <coughs> he tells us here that he's a partner with, with the churches that are going through persecution. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and, and endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus. Now John was on this prison island because he testified about Jesus and his gospel. Uh, his letter was most likely written towards the end of the first century. And at that time, uh, the Roman Emperor Domitian came to power. Now Domitian, um, he wasn't a very kind fellow, uh, and he's pretty fond of himself. His favourite title was Dominus et Deus Noster, our Lord and God. That's how he loved people to address him, our Lord and our God. And he set up these shrines, these statues of, of himself around the empire for, for all of the, the people of the Roman Empire to bow down and to worship him. But obviously the true Christians would never do this. Because our Lord and our God is, is Yahweh, is Jesus. And so the Christians faced heavy persecution for doing this. Uh, and so that's probably why John is on Patmos. He refused to, to bow down and worship Caesar. And I think it's important for us here to realise that if you're serious about being a Christian and following Jesus, you will face persecution and suffering and ridicule. Now, if you stand up and testify about him, you'll be mocked, maybe beaten, but this is actually nothing new. Jesus himself said, to, um, said as much to his followers that if they treated him like that, if, if people treated Jesus like that, well, they're going to treat his followers like that as well. If you're serious about being a Christian and following Jesus, uh, persecution will come your way. And so John here, he writes to these seven churches in, in Asia Minor uh, who are under the pump, they're living with extreme persecution, they're battling to persevere um, because they're not bowing down to Caesar as king. But remember that this is God's revelation. This is God's message. It's not John writing this stuff. It is God who is inspiring him to write this stuff. Um, it's a memo from the big man upstairs, as Tanian might say. Um, and it's actually the entire book of Revelation that he writes to the seven churches. Now, not just the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3. Every word of this whole book is for all the churches. And as we consider the apocalyptic genre, numbers aren't used in a mathematical way. Uh, they're symbolic. I kind of like, you know, 13 is an, an unlucky number for us. If you have any understanding of Asian cultures, um, this idea is a no-brainer. They've got heaps of lucky and unlucky numbers. And my sister Jo lives in Hong Kong with her husband Mitch and, and a couple of kids. And, and the high-rise buildings there don't have floors with the number 4 in it. And uh, she sent me a photo of, of the buttons in their lift, and it goes 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 15. Yeah, there's no 24. Um, you go from floor 39 to floor 50. Um, uh, in, in, in honkers as well, 
they, they tell me that there's actually no iPhone 4. They just went straight from iPhone 3 to iPhone 5. Only the crazy white people bought the iPhone 4. <laughs> um, multiples of 4 are also bad. Um, so my brother-in-law, Mitch, um, he can't buy 12 roses. But my sister, she can somehow buy him a 12-pack of beer. I don't know how. Um, and, and when my dad and I travelled to China several years ago, uh, he was actually given better treatment than the rest of us at immigration because his passport had heaps of number eights in it. They loved having him come through their aisles and oh, brought them good luck. But those who had, you know, fours in it, I kind of be so cooperative. Uh, but in Revelation, the number seven means completeness. It means perfection. And so while this letter is addressed to those seven churches, they're merely representative of every church. This apocalypse is for every church and, and us included. And it's a letter from God to you. And it's important to remember that as we read this letter, it's written to God's servants in every age. Now, isn't that just amazing? As we pause and reflect that God would write to you. few thousand years old that he's written this for you. It's extraordinary. Now what does this first chapter reveal to us about Jesus? Well, jump down to verse 4. John to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming. And grace and peace to you from the seven spirits before his throne. And grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priests to, to his God and Father, the glory and dominion are his forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. And all the families on earth will mourn over him. This is certain. Amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, who is coming, the Almighty. Now in verse 4, grace comes to us from God the Father, from Jesus, and from the seven spirits. And now the seven spirits here, it's just talking about the Holy Spirit, number of seven, it's about fullness and completeness, just talking about yeah, the fullness of the Spirit. Grace comes from God in Trinity. Verse 5, we see that Jesus is the faithful <coughs> witness. He testifies to what is true. He speaks the truth. Uh, you might recall back you know, when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate um, in his trial before he was crucified, Jesus spoke the truth. He's a faithful witness. He's also the firstborn from the dead, the first one to be resurrected from death, to overcome it. And because he is this firstborn, it means that he is supreme, he's preeminent, he is number one, he's top dog. And finally in verse 5, he's also the ruler of the kings of earth. Now, what a comfort this is. Yeah, think about John. Think about the seven churches. We're facing all kinds of trials from earthly rulers. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of earth. Now, the Romans, they hated the Christians. They were insubordinate. They wouldn't bow down to Caesar. It's because they believed that, that God, Jesus, was their king. That he rules over every king. So even when it seems like Christianity isn't going strong... Now, when the church might be facing all kinds of persecution, like in those early years, and still in places today, as we see ISIS pushing out um, everyone who's not um, Muslim, 
this gives us all great comfort because Jesus is on his throne. Gives us great confidence. He is still ruling. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. It gives us great hope and encouragement to keep listening to his words, to keep enduring and to keep worshipping. We read in verse 6 that this King Jesus loves us. Not you know, in a warm, fuzzy way, but in action. He sets us free from our sins by his blood. He shows his love for us by going to the cross, by bearing our sins, freeing us from slavery to our sinful natures, freeing us to bow down and, and worship him rather than all the empty things that we pursue. And we're slaves to the things that we worship, aren't we? We're in slavery to the things we worship. If it's money or sex or power, if it's, it might be popularity, acceptance, might be your experiences or or the pleasures, or, or, or the comforts of this world. All these things that we worship, we are slaves to them. But here we see Jesus frees us from being slaves to the things that are worthless. Things that are going to lead us to destruction. And he frees us to worship him, to live for him, to be his servants. Just really no burden at all. And in verse 6 as well there, he made us a kingdom and priests. And this is picking up some of the Old Testament language in Exodus chapter 19, where God gathers his people uh, to be a kingdom of priests. He's made us parts of Jesus' kingdom who, who now serve him as priests, and not with sacrificial animals anymore, because Jesus was the once-for-all sacrifice. We now serve as priests in, in the new way of offering our bodies as living sacrifices, Romans 12, 1 to 2. And that looks like loving God and loving our neighbours. It looks like living upright and holy lives and sharing the good news of the gospel with our friends. That's what it looks like to be priests. And if you're a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, well, you are a priest. Every one of you. If you're a priest, it means that you're in full-time ministry. And we serve God. We serve Him not because we have to, because we want to, we delight to. We love him because he first loved us. And by his blood, he, he forgave our sins. And he gives us freedom and new life and, and eternal life where he's going to be king and ruler forever in the new creation. And Jesus, the king, is returning. He's coming back. Uh, verse 7 is alluding to, to Daniel chapter 7 that we read earlier and and other parts of the Bible, like Zechariah chapter 12, where every, every eye will see Jesus coming back to the earth. Everyone will see Jesus in the second coming. A day is coming when Jesus will return in all his glory. And on that day, if you look in verse 7 there, those who pierced him, those who rejected him will weep. This is certain, it says. They'll realise that they killed God's son when he returned. And they will mourn. Because judgment is upon them. We belong to the kingdom of God, though, don't we? if we've been freed from our sins by his blood. On that day, we'll be celebrating. Because on that day, it will be the last day of death. The last day of sadness and sickness. That day will be the last day that a tear will ever be shed. As Jesus brings in his new perfect creation and his people will live with him forever. 
verse 10 now introduces us to what John saw. Look there with me. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me, like a trumpet. You know, like Greg with Evie behind him. Not really. Um, here, John's vision begins that he was in the Spirit, that God was showing him the world from his perspective. It was on the Lord's day, after the resurrection of Jesus, God's people met on Sunday, not on the Sabbath Saturday, as a reminder of the resurrection, the Lord's day. And then John hears a loud voice behind him like a trumpet. Um, in, in Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 1, it talks about there a voice like a trumpet. But that voice is a voice of judgment. That's what trumpets symbolize, judgment. And it says, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, uh, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so... Verse 12, John turns to see whose voice it was that spoke, to see that trumpeter. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. Picture that, seven gold lampstands. Among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe and with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. His hair and his head were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it was fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at midday. Cool imagery, isn't it? But what John sees here is a human, a son of man, like the one we read about in Daniel 7. And it's Jesus the glorious judge. And he's there standing among the seven gold lampstands with seven stars in his right hand. Now what does that mean? Or was Jesus in a, in a shop that sells fancy lights? You know, these golden lampstands? I think not. Jump down to verse 20 because we're given the answer there. The secret of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. How you got it? John's vision is of Jesus standing among his churches with the angels of these churches in his hands. <coughs> and then there's, there's all these striking descriptors of Jesus. Now John goes nuts here with, with Old Testament images to describe what Jesus is like. If you've got a cross-reference Bible, it's going crazy at this point, jam-packed full of Old Testament references. Um, one of the handouts that I gave you, you can see where some of these images have, have come from. And these descriptions that we read here in chapter 1, they appear time and time again later in Revelation. Uh, they come back later. Uh, what do they mean? The white robe and the gold sash? Well, that's what the Old Testament priests used to wear. And we saw some of that in Leviticus earlier this year that we went through. And it's what the king wore in Daniel's vision. Okay, so it's picturing Jesus as, as a priest and as a king. His head and his hair were like white wool and snow. His eyes were like a fiery flame. The white here represents purity. And the fire represents judgment. So it's saying Jesus judges rightly. His feet 
like bronze fired in a furnace. He walks around in strength and in purity. As in it being in the furnace, it's pure, it's not going to rust or corrode. And his voice sounds like the Niagara Falls of, of cascading, rushing, many waters. Uh, this is what the voice of God sounds like in Ezekiel chapter 1. Powerful, deafening, unstoppable. And here the voice of God is equated to Jesus himself. Out of his mouth comes a double-edged sword. Isaiah chapter 49 speaks of words being like a sharp sword. Hebrews chapter 4 likewise speaks about Jesus' words penetrating our hearts like a double-edged sword examining us, judging us. And his face was bright as the sun. His face was like when, when Jesus gave a glimpse of his glory when he was on earth to, to Peter and, and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17. A glimpse of Jesus in his glory. Now, as John here describes Jesus, he really is pressing the limits of human language and imagination. It's because Jesus really is that wonderful. This is the real Jesus in all his splendor and his might, uh, the glorious priest and judge and king who lays his life down for us. Extraordinary imagery. He shed his blood. And as John sees this incredible vision, he does exactly what we should do as well. Have a look in verse 17. Now, as we come to grips with who it is that God is revealing to us, verse 17 says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Now, the power and the purity and the grandeur of Jesus is not something that we should be blasé about. And we can't just rock up to God and go, mate, I haven't seen you in ages. In the Bible, whenever someone sees God, they either die or they think they're going to die. John's is the right reflex. He falls at his feet like a dead man. So what happens next is just extraordinary. Jesus lays his right hand on John and says, don't be afraid. Imagine freaking out at that moment. And, and I can imagine him thinking when he hears that, yeah, phew, they're words that came out of Jesus' mouth rather than the sword. And those words, they're, they're words that are just full of grace and reassurance and loaded with comfort. And this glorious vision of Jesus, the priest, the judge, the king, he stoops down, a tender touch on the shoulder, gracious words into his ear. Don't be afraid, John. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, even though John has seen at the same time the most wonderful and the most frightening thing he has ever seen, he's not going to die because Jesus' words here are gracious. Jesus has defeated death. He's the victor. He has the owner's keys. He now rules over death itself and he knows the way to eternal life for all those who fall at his feet, for all those who bathe in his blood, and persevere in holding fast to him. Now this prophecy that John has written down, it paints for us an extraordinary picture of Jesus. 
He has triumphed. And you know, he's like swinging the keys of death around his finger. The King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. How do you see Jesus? How do you picture Jesus? Is he like this? Revelation chapter 1. Because if you have realized who Jesus is, if your understanding of Jesus is like Revelation chapter 1, then the only thing you can do is be like John and fall at his feet as though dead. Falling at his feet in worship. The right thing to do is to worship Jesus, to fear him, to live for him. Because he was and is and is to come. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the only one who has defeated death. The only one who knows the way to eternal life. He's the gracious victor. He's the risen Lord of glory, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's reigning on his throne in heaven. And his return is imminent. It could be a couple of seconds ahead of what? I'm about to say, might be 10 minutes ahead, might be a thousand years ahead, we don't know, but his return is imminent. But on that day, will you be celebrating or will you be mourning? It all depends on how you respond to Jesus in these last days. Whether or not you've been freed from your sins by his blood. And for those who have, those who continue to fall at his feet and bathe in his blood, we have no cause for fear in this life. No fear of death. No fear of, of what persecution might come our way. No fear of, of condemnation on that day Jesus returns. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, that is found in his blood. And just close your eyes and imagine that vision that John had for a moment. Jesus, in all his glory, bright and shining, walking amongst the lampstands, which are his churches. He has the seven stars in the palm of his hand. Jesus is with us. In fact, he is right here with us tonight at Uni Church. Jesus is here by his Spirit. And his angels, the angels that are in his hand, those seven stars, they are right now ministering to you. Helping us to hear this revelation from God about him. Giving us strength to endure suffering until the end. Strengthening us to serve as priests in his kingdom. Helping us to love God and love our neighbours and, and to live upright and holy lives and to share this incredible news of the gospel. Do you realise you are blessed if you hear these words and keep them? Falling daily at the feet of the glorious King Jesus, that is the blessed life. Daily falling at the feet of the glorious King Jesus. That is where we find blessing. What is your picture of Jesus? Will you be celebrating or mourning on the day he returns? Friends, this is a great letter for us to be looking at together. Uh, I wonder if you have some questions for me now. Matt said, you, you can write questions on the, 
comment cards if you can't quite uh, uh, get it out to ask now. Yeah, Tim? What did you say the Uh, so they're the words of Jesus, and they're words that, that judge, that penetrate, um, that see right through us, that cut us to the heart. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're words that that are, that are true, and they they work out what is right and what is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just a question about the sort of the angel thing that he's got in his hands. Mm -hmm. I can get, I can sort of understand that he's walking around with walking in the middle of his church. I can understand that. What's with the angels in his hand? Like is it messengers? What, what's the go there? Yeah, the um, another way to the the word angel can be translated um, is to be a messenger. Um, but I, I think here, I think it's it's. Um, I think we need to see it as kind of the um, the, the angels that that support God and are on Jesus' side are actually ministering to us. Now the Bible doesn't talk heaps about what that really um, looks like. There are various descriptions of angels um, in, in Isaiah, you know, with wings and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but the focus really isn't so much, the Bible's focus really isn't on the angels. It's more on, on Jesus and, and how he ministers to the church and supports the church um, uh, by his spirit and, and with these angels. But yeah, it's not heaps clear how exactly it is that they do it. Um, but it's a picture of Jesus um, caring and protecting his people. to you again. Read, have a read of this, this uh, outline here. It'll really help you to, to mull over things um, as we get going. Uh, also, it'll be, be a good help next over the next week just to read chapters 2 to 3 if you get a chance because I'll be, um, be preaching on those next next week. Hey, Brenton. Okay, yeah. um, so the description of the one like the Son of Man. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the description from Daniel 7. Yep. So are we looking at the Ancient of Days or are we so in, in Daniel 7, um, if, you, if you have a look back there, the, the Ancient of Days is, is God and, and the picture is, is one like a son of man, a human person, coming to the throne of God and God giving that, that human figure power and dominion and authority to rule over the earth. And so we see that that's a picture of Jesus, that's what God does. And so Jesus is approaching um, his Father's throne there and the Father then gives his... Um, his authority and his power and his rule to Jesus uh, to exercise um, over the earth. So that's that's what it's what it's talking about. So the similarities between the descriptions of the actual ancient of days and kind of what the Son of Man looks like is not nothing uh, So yeah. So the the, the thing that um, that happens is in the Old Testament there's the two characters: the Ancient of Days and this Son of Man. What is happening in Revelation, and what Jesus does through other places when he talks about the Son of Man, is he's merging those two Old Testament figures together. And what he's doing is saying that I, Jesus, am God. Um, I'm not my Father. 
um, but uh, he's showing his divinity, that the attributes of what God is like, he's saying that that's what Jesus has. So it's wanting to show us the, that Jesus is God. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father, what an extraordinary part of your word this is. We thank you for revealing Jesus to us through John here, uh, through other parts of your word as well. We ask that as we, uh, we work through Revelation this term, we ask that you give us a true picture of Jesus. And as you do that, fill us with awe and wonder at his glory and power and purity and love. We thank you that, that you're a gracious God who allows this for us. We know that we don't deserve to be in your presence, that we should be dead. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that in your love, you reached out to us. You put on flesh in the Lord Jesus and, and you shed your blood for us. We thank you that we might be forgiven uh, for our sins and, and, and set free in Jesus. Father, we pray that you help us to always treat you like John, to fall down at your feet in worship. Help us to keep trusting you even when life is hard, because we know that Jesus is still in control. He's still on his throne. So we ask that you give us perseverance. We ask too, Father, that, that you might minister to us and to all your servants as we testify to the truth of our risen King. We pray especially for our brothers and sisters around the world who face severe persecution for your name's sake. Refresh their spirits, Father. Give them strength. Fill their hearts with love and grace and joy. May we all long together for the day that Jesus returns where he puts an end to sin, death, and evil. Um, help us to long for that day where you will take us to be with you in paradise. And as we wait hard for that day, help us bear witness to Jesus. Help us to declare the praises of the one who was and is and is to come. 